Welcome to the Great Detectives of Old Time Radio. From Boise, Idaho, this is your host, Adam Graham. If you have a comment, email it to me, box13 at greatdetectives.net. Follow us on Twitter at Radio Detectives, and check us out on Instagram, instagram.com slash greatdetectives. If you've not already, I do encourage you to enter our Sherlock Holmes giveaway. Go to giveaway.greatdetectives.net and enter to win some great Sherlock Holmes premiums or our upcoming t-shirt. Just go to giveaway.greatdetectives.net. Well, now it is time for this week's episode of The Adventures of Sam Spade. And for the second straight week, I have to apologize in advance for the quality of the audio. And this one is even worse. I think this may be the worst quality audio we had to work with all season. Uh, Obviously, Andrew will do what he can with it. But the original air date, January 25th, 1948. And the title is The Gold Key Caper. About as much as the police know. You know more? Honestly, I don't even know that. 
I didn't even know what he was until he was born in the two years ago. That was the last time I saw him. It's me, Jane, wasn't it? I was too shocked. But I thought I could stand by him. As I remember, the rap was three to five years breaking it up. Yes, I promised to wait for him. You couldn't quite remember. Well, in a way, you'll probably be wrong. And I heard he was coming out of prison. Well, I just can't think. Have you, uh, brought a lady, Tom? Oh, it wouldn't make any difference. He'd find me wherever I went. Can't say that I'm What's the fun? Yo, thank you, Are you always saying so? Never. That depends. Oh, yeah. Well, how many other staff have handled like this county police, and how many other staff have helped you get out from under? Really? There must be some other type of people. Okay, here's your money. Well, I won't go. You can't turn me away like this. But no, things I'm told. You know, it's not going to be right when I put my trust in you. That's a lousy action. Huh? Yeah. Well, I'm sorry. Now look at it. What do you want me to do? Well, he's abiding in San Francisco. He'll come to my office. He's ready. I haven't been seen him or seen out since then. That myself is going to be a killing man. Well, I don't. You said you didn't until the cops came in. But I didn't. I didn't know you didn't even know. I just thought it was a gang. They were like anybody. And then about his back. Whenever he is angry, just go crazy. I wanted to be the only person in my life. Then I was going to write and then tell him in prison. But then I was afraid he'd break out and just be the worst for himself. But now... Oh, you've really got a face. Yes, but I can't. Uh huh, and you want me to hold a gun on him while you get in the air. Oh, you see it like that. Maybe it's just a change. But I just can't forget you. I can't. I just need it to do with my father and my father. And I've been finished. For how long? Uh, look. Okay. Look, uh, let's say something to have to tell us, don't we? I was wrong. You're not afraid of me. You're not afraid of anything. What's the address? 1234 Van Nuys, 1021. What time do you do it? It's just getting off, please. I'll be there a quarter up. Budget four times. Long, short, long, short. No. No, don't use it. I don't want to be with this. Here. Take this. Step yourself in. Gold key. Johnny. Forever. Uh, don't worry, Angel, don't worry. You can put a new name on there. This was not engraved very deep. After she'd drawn, a heavy fragrance clung to everything she touched. The chair she sat in, my glass with her lipstick on it for 300 bucks, even the gold teeth. I rubbed it up against my coat plate. The name didn't come off. It only shone brighter. I threw it across the room just to see if it was possible. It did. And when I walked over to pick it up, there were two keys, or at least one and a half. The gold shank had been hollowed out, and the key that fitted inside it was wrong again, Buzzy. Not a glass key, a brass key with a number on it, 322, nothing else. I wondered if Johnny the Chief had been living a double life, or at least one and a half. I was still wondering when I put the brass key back into its hiding place and used the gold one to unlock the door of Juan's apartment. her perfume, but she wasn't there. Johnny Batiste was. He was cleaning the prison dirt out of his fingernails with a shiny new spring blade knife. Get that key. What for? You're in. 
Like what? Change your mind if you don't want to see it. Who changed it for? I did. I told her she shouldn't ought to marry into the wrong set. So give me that key and blow. Oh, there she is. I told you to blow if you don't want to see it. Oh, let's see yourself. You're so happy.
Uh, about that gold key, Angel, I think you better change the lock of the door. Why? I gave it to Johnny. No. I know you're fooling. Oh, he was broke. He made it. Oh, where did you get a crazy idea like that? Where did you get those great, big, beautiful lies? Sandy, silly. But I am. We're engaged, aren't we? Oh, stop that. Listen to me. If I don't have that key back by midnight, I don't... You come back to kill me. Get out of sight. Get out of sight. I'll take care of you. Neither one was Johnny the Thief. They brushed past me and entered the room without a word and stood there with their faces hanging out. While we were giving each other the silent treatment, I sized them up. The larger size, I recognized some newspaper pictures. He was a big sand and gravel man, and rumor had it that a stretch of paving outside the town contained the bodies of 18 other sand and gravel men who had bid against him for the contract and stumbled into a rock pressure. Name? Mike Malloy. The uh, musician with him put his viola case down on the sofa and opened it up. <laughs> No, 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 no. This isn't the man, Nathan. Why, Jackie, what he's doing here? Well, it's down in the Jack comic book. Uh, okay, wrong question. Mr. Bates, I told his father to hire you, had me both. No, Jack, good. I brought along my bodyguard here just in case. Where is he? I sent him to the movie. Why, because you see Johnny with me? Yeah, he dropped him. He didn't, he didn't make any trouble? No. Did he suppose to? Yeah, there's no point in our talking in circles. Johnny the Thief used to work for me. Maybe he was there with one of his men working me. Why for me, I see. Things have changed. Johnny isn't the man he used to be. But I've always taken care of those who serve me loyally. I uh, thought we weren't uh, talking in circles. Believe me, Mr. Spade, I hope they want to save Johnny from himself. Is he threatening to jump into one of your rock records? <laughs> What's that, boy? He's got a sense of humor. <laughs> I'm sorry, I say it's fit. I was misinformed about you, Mr. Spade. I was led to believe that you were the man to help my fiancé and myself out of this embarrassing situation. Your fiancé? Uh, Wanda? Miss Fox? Yes? Yes, it's fiancé. I'll be absolutely frank with you, Spade. I had hoped by bringing you and Johnny Steve together under circumstances that you might be forced to kill him. In self-defense, of course. My apologies, It would have been the merciful way out for Johnny, and it would have saved many lives. I know Johnny Steve. He will try to get back on top. He'll stop that nothing. I believed them, and it was no mistake. That's why I almost hope they didn't know where Johnny was, but they did. After they left one at the park, they crossed the street, went into the neon-lighted bar and grill. By the time I got downstairs, they were on their way out again with Johnny in the middle. They didn't look like they wanted to go, but they dragged him into Malloy's limousine, and he went. I did, too. I 
made like I'd been hit, but I couldn't quite manage the death rattle. When I heard the gunman run down the hall toward the rear of the building, I rose courageously to my hands and knees and crawled the rest of the way down the corridor and looked into the smoke-filled room. The air tasted like burned powder, but it smelled like blood. I followed my insides and went in. There were eight of them. I'll spare you the details, Sunday. You saw them after they were cleaned up. I needed some fresh air, and I needed it quick. Where's the boy? Out. What do you want? I want to talk to you, pigeon. 
Where's the picture? Nobody but you, Naples. If you just think somebody else was going up for that slaughter in room 322. Uh, Johnny got them guys. That's the boss. I asked the boss. He said you did. Johnny bargained for a written statement by Malloy alibying Johnny. The cops have got it now. They'll believe it. Malloy's a big citizen, so you're the only pigeon left. That's what you think. Where is he? Wait here. I'll bring him to you. I left Naples standing there in the vestibule waiting for Malloy. Then I hoisted Johnny out of my back and left Malloy waiting for Naples. He went out the back way. I rang to the freight elevator and watched the floor indicator moving around. I believe it was between six and seven when I heard a familiar sound from the Malloy apartment. Robert. He invented the whole caper, including the whole book, is about the gold key. 
Oh, you ask me why? Why? The Hebrew come out of Malloy's rock crush, you see. Well, he was resting safely for three years in San Quentin. Malloy was driving himself crazy following that gold scheme, trying to dig up a half a million that wasn't even there. He figured by the time he got out, Malloy would be crazy enough to overplay his hand. And he was right. But left him. Well, Sam, if you ask me, it wasn't the gold key that drove my life station. Oh. Yeah. Well, I can't say it. It's not my place. Why? You know what I mean. Good night, Father. Welcome back. So, we get kind of a recurring theme here with Sam Spade and harkens back to the novel with criminals committing all sorts of despicable acts for a prize that ultimately doesn't exist. Martin Grahams in his book on the radio series notes that even though we don't have the closing credits, it's unlikely that William Spear directed this episode himself since on the day that the program aired, he got married to June Havoc. And in the book, Graham said that when Spear didn't direct, that Elliot Lewis, who was a buddy of Howard Duff in the Army, with a very similar sounding voice and also a great radio acting career, would actually fill in for Spear. So it's likely that this episode was directed by Elliot Lewis. And uh, we turn to YouTube and a comment regarding our 3800th episode special from Eileen regarding the end of The Glass Key. Um, that ending, his last lines were kind of out of place with the rest of the script. There was nothing but hate, contempt, and veiled civility the entire time. And I think that's referring to his uh, relationship throughout the story with the senator's daughter. And I think that there is some uh, truth to that. There's not a whole lot of indication of romantic attraction. Uh, even in the book, there's minimal indication. Our hero, Ned, has issues with how the senator's daughter is being used to lead Paul on, get him to support the senator's campaign, and sees it as a really bad match that she's not going to go through with. And he also really hates the rumors that uh, she spreads out by sending malicious letters indicating that Paul committed the murders. Now, one thing the book includes that I don't think the radio adaptation captures is that they kind of teamed up towards the end with Ned leading her to believe that they were going to prove Paul had committed the killing only for a last-minute twist to reveal the real killer. In a way, I think the senator's daughter really was a character that, if you look at it at a high level, despite how Ned felt about it at the time, 
she really did behave, I think, in a very human way, as opposed to all of the very calculating uh, and ruthless people that dominated uh, the story. When it came to leading on Paul, this was the senator's idea, and, you know, he invited Paul over and, you know, did his best to facilitate it, but she just would not have any of it. She would not pretend that there was really a chance. And essentially, the idea that Paul had of him and the senator's daughter getting together was entirely in his own mind, led by the senator. And even her sending the malicious letters, while it wasn't something that was appropriate, you don't uh, accuse people of murder without hard evidence. And there's something slightly, well, very dishonest about uh, the way she sent them. But she was sending them out of concern for justice for her brother, who was killed. And I think in both cases, it, this was not something that was politically indicated, and she came from a very political family. And she was the only, or, or one of the few people, I think, in the story who placed human uh, personal uh, needs and what was right for herself and her family personally above what would be politically expedient. And her and Ned both shared that sense that political power wasn't the most important thing. Yet I think that it really defined everyone else in their social group in this city. You had in the book city officials you know, thinking about prosecuting Paul, trying to distance uh, themselves not because they thought he was guilty, but because they were concerned that if they didn't do something, it would be a drag on their entire ticket. And you had other people who were trying to get Paul uh, just for political reasons. Ned was acting out of his personal loyalty and friendship for Paul. Even after concluded that sooner or later, Paul was going to lose political power that he was not adapting to changing times and situations. But he hung around to make sure that they didn't throw a noose over his neck. And Janet, Senator's daughter, was acting out of personal loyalty to her brother. So while they clashed, they clashed because they had similar values. So I find them sitting together at the end to be believable, despite the lack of real spark in the book throughout most of its length. I also think you have to think about the times that they were in. It's the 1930s, and the way things... For ended for the senator's daughter was not good. Her, you know, social position, family situation, all essentially wiped out. Now, as a single woman who's not worked probably at all in your life, do you really uh, want to start all alone on the, your own? Or do you want to take a chance on this 
guy who is attracted to you. I think in that context, it does make even more sense. If you were writing a story about the 60s or 70s, maybe the relationship doesn't quite go there. But I think writing where it's set, it does make it does make sense. Though I'm not certain the radio version conveys that. But thanks so much for the comment, Eileen. Now it's time to thank our Patreon supporter of the day. Thank you to Chris, Patreon supporter since June of 2015, currently supporting the program at the Detective Sergeant level of $7.14 or more per month. Again, thank you so much for your support. Well, that will do it for today. If you are enjoying this podcast, be sure to rate and review it wherever you download your podcast from. We will be back next Monday with another episode of The Adventures of Sam Spade. And a week from Tuesday, we will be playing a rare series for one week, This is O'Shea. In the meantime, do send your comments to box13 at greatdetectives.net. Follow us on Twitter at Radio Detectives and check us out on Instagram, instagram.com slash greatdetectives. From Boise, Idaho, this is your host, Adam Graham, signing off.